Holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Unfortunately, in too many churches today, certain things are relegated to secondary issues and are put off limits. And it's unfortunate that we don't hear more pastors and more churches speak on things like the holiness of God, repentance, sin, hell, topics that are not so seeker-sensitive in today's world, but are biblical, and we need to be reminded of those things as much as the comfortable things such as love and peace and grace that we so often talk about. And so this week and next week, you are going to hear a lot about God's holiness. And I hope that's a subject that drives you to your knees before a holy God and causes you to think about the one who is seated on that throne, the one who we worship, the one who we adore and obey, and just who he is as a, in his attributes as well as what he expects from his people. So I want to read to us our verse of confession this morning before we begin from Isaiah chapter 57. And I'm just going to read verse 15, which I felt went well, not just for confession, but for the topic that we'll be looking at today. So we'll read this verse, spend a few moments in silent prayer, asking God to cleanse our heart and draw us into his presence, and then I'll lead us in prayer together. Isaiah 57, 15. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, to revive, do you need reviving this morning? To revive the spirit of the lowly, and to revive the heart of the contrite. Father, teach us today of who you are. Help us to see you in all your glory and majesty, in your holiness, Heavenly Father. Help us to have humble spirits as we approach you, thankful that an infinite, eternal God would love us enough to provide his Son so that we might have access to the throne of grace. Lord, may we never take that lightly, and may we always know that our sins would have condemned us were it not for the grace and goodness of God. So, Lord, we praise you today for what you've done in our lives, for what you're doing in our church, and what we believe you'll continue to do as we share the gospel and shine our lights in a lost and dying world. Lord, have your way now in this service. We give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you this morning to turn with me again to 1 Peter. We began a series in that epistle last week, and we will continue this week looking at this letter that Peter wrote. As you're finding your place, if you remember, that he was writing to primarily Gentiles, although Peter's ministry was to the Jews. In this letter in particular, he's writing primarily to Gentiles who are starting to feel persecution, not only from the Jewish side of things, but perhaps from the Roman side of things. This letter was written probably in early to uh, mid-60s, in the 60s AD, where a gentleman by the name of Nero would have been in power. And Mr. Nero was anything but nice. Uh, He was, uh, to put it bluntly, insane. 
uh, and he drew pleasure in tormenting people. And so he would have no problem persecuting Christians, and after the great fire in Rome in 64 AD, he would unleash all his fury on Christians, blaming them for setting that fire and persecuting them in the cruelest and most vile of ways. And so Peter is writing probably on the heels of that happening uh, or just as, as has happened. And so that's who he's writing to, folks that are facing a lot of suffering and persecution. And we talked about that a lot last week. So the title of my message today and next week, this is part one, we'll look at part two next week, A Call to Holy Living. We're going to look today together at 1 Peter verses 13 through 16, and I'm going to invite you one final time, if you're able, to stand. If not, don't feel obligated if you're not able to stand with us this morning. But we'll read together verses 13 through 16 from 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter writes there, Therefore, preparing your minds for action, or having your loins girded for action, be sober-minded, Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Father, again, we thank you for your word and we pray now that the Spirit of God would move among us, open our eyes and our hearts to the truth, and have your way in this service, Lord. And we'll give you thanks and praise for everything that happens here today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. There was a story in Reader's Digest, showing my age there. I don't think anybody, I don't even know if Reader's Digest is around anymore, to be honest with you. But in Reader's Digest, I don't read it anymore, by the way, but I did, but I did find this story. Uh, there was a, a tale of, of a young man going out to get his driver's license. And, you know, if you can remember back, or some of you in the church have just gotten licenses this year, uh, you have to take, or at least you used to, pre-COVID, get to get in the car and drive around and do the driver's test. And this young man got in the car with the instructor, and they drove around. And when it was concluded, the, the, the instructor looked at him, and, and he said, Congratulations, you have received a perfect score and the young man looked at him and and he he breathed a sigh of relief and he said i am sure glad that i don't have to drive like that all of the time <laughs> isn't it funny how when when eyes are upon us when we're taking a test or uh ben anita you guys are probably familiar with this area when you drive down river road and you're approaching joyce park have you ever noticed that there's that SUV, that sheriff SUV that always sits in that driveway? It's been there for years, but it catches you, or at least it does me, every single time. And you hit the brake, and, and you make sure you got distance between, you know, because all of a sudden the law is in front of us, or so we think, and so we correct our behavior, just like this young man in that story did. He was being watched and graded, so he wanted to give his best. But he certainly didn't feel like that was how he was going to drive all the time. And if we're honest, some of us have a lead foot more so than others, except for when we know where the speed traps are, correct? And so when we think about that in a funny way in life, in a more sobering way, I think we as believers often carry ourselves the same way. 
perhaps we act and behave a certain way in church or when we're around other people. But is our behavior in this thing called the Christian life consistent when nobody's watching, when no one else is around, or perhaps we're in the confines of just our own home? Then how do we carry ourselves? Is our behavior and our actions and our attitude the same as it would be when someone's around watching? Because there is one that's always watching. There is one that always knows our thoughts and our intents and our actions. But I think sometimes we forget of His holiness. And when we preach on holiness, often we're accused of being legalistic. That, oh, we're under grace. We shouldn't talk about keeping rules and statutes and living a certain way. Grace allows us to to be forgiven and to live in such a way that we don't need to worry about the law. And I would say that that is a misunderstanding of both the law's role in the life of a believer and grace as God gives it to the believer. And so we need to understand that we're not under the law in the sense that the law is a path to salvation or that we can keep it in some way that we would be able to justify ourselves through law-keeping. That is a sheer act of grace, whereby God sent His Son to pay for the penalty that sin demanded by keeping the law perfectly. He is able to impute His righteousness to us. But that doesn't nullify the fact that believers are called to a standard of living as Christians and that we are commanded to live in such a way that honors Christ, that obeys His Word, and shows the holiness of the God that we worship and who lives in us. And so, Peter is writing to these folks and he's encouraging them in the face of this suffering and in the face of this persecution to not conform to the worldly pressures. We use the term today, peer pressure. But they had pressure from the outside as well. The Jewish believers were being pressured to leave faith alone in Christ and return to the ceremonial ritualistic ways of Judaism. A lot of these Gentiles had come from pagan backgrounds and there was pressure to conform back to that type of lifestyle and that type of worship. And we face pressure from the world today. I look around at a lot of these young people that are in here. A lot of these kids that are teenagers or getting ready to be teenagers. And you all are bombarded with pressures from other people. That's one of the, the downsides to social media is that you see a caricature of everybody's life. Do you realize, I hope we realize, that most of what you see on Facebook about people's lives isn't their real life. What people post on Facebook and Instagram is snapshots of the best moments of their life. Very seldom do people post the difficulties and the tragedies and the trials that they're facing. And a lot of times when we look on Facebook and we scroll down through there and we see, oh, so-and-so's perfect marriage, so-and-so's beautiful house, so-and-so got a promotion, that we start to think, why is everybody's life so perfect and mine isn't? Their life's not perfect, my friend. It's just like yours. But you're only looking at these little snapshots and then you're comparing yourself. And that is a dangerous place to get into. 
And the world pressures us to conform. It pulls at these kids' lives to conform. Christianity calls us to be set apart, to be different. And the world's saying, why do you want to be like that? That's no fun. Enjoy these things. Be a part of this thing. And if we don't come together as believers and encourage one another and help one another and help these kids and invest in their life, the world will pull them away. Too many of us have seen the reality and know the reality of the prodigal child. And even, even in the best of homes, with the best of upbringing, does not guarantee that your child will walk in the faith. But you need to set the foundation. You need to be a constant source of encouragement and hope for them and model that. Don't just say it, live it before them. So what does it mean that God is holy? I, I kind of kidded with Caleb because the songs that they sang this week were not originally scheduled, but Caleb switched things around and he had no idea what my message was about this week. And he sang, we sang together, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, which is the very topic of this message. And the idea of holiness in, in its basic form means to be set apart. But I don't think that that shows us the magnitude of what the Holy One enthroned in His kingdom looks like. And perhaps the best example I know of is in the book of Isaiah chapter 6, where Isaiah gets a glimpse of this throne room of heaven. He gets a chance to see God seated in the holiest of holies, if you will, in, heaven, in heavenly places. Let me read to you Isaiah 6, verses 1 through 5. Listen to what Isaiah sees there. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne. King of kings, seated on His throne. High and lifted up, and the train of His robe filled the temple. In ancient times, the longer that the robe was, it signified royalty. This robe is so long, it, it doubles over and fills the entire room of the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, the burning ones is what that word means, these special angels that exist to worship the Lord and lead in worship. Each had six wings. With two of those wings, they covered their faces. They, even the angels would not dare to look upon the Holy One. They covered their feet, signifying where they went. They were cautious about where they would go in light of the Holy One. And with two, they flew, and they called to one another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, of heaven's armies, is what that means. The whole earth is full of His glory, and the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of Him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. Picture that in your mind. And then notice... Isaiah and his response to seeing this. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people with unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. The late R.C. Sproul said that the Bible says that God is holy, holy, holy. Not that He is merely holy once, or even holy, holy twice. He is holy, holy, holy. 
He goes on to say, the Bible never says that God is love, 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 or mercy, 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 or wrath, 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 or even justice, justice, justice. It does say that He is holy, holy, holy. The whole earth is full of His glory. When we picture as Isaiah did, that awesome scene with God and all His majesty and holiness seated in His throne room, notice the response of the angels, the seraphim, and notice the response of Isaiah. And think about for a moment how we today approach God. The seraphim cover their face and their feet in His presence. Isaiah cries out, Woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. And the people around me are unclean. They understood their position before a holy God. They understood the reverence and awe that we as fallen creatures, finite creatures, created beings, ought to give to this Holy One. And I feel today that many of us have lost the fear of God and we have forgotten our position before such a Holy One. Yes, by grace we have become His children and He is our Father and we can uh, approach Him in love and grace knowing that He cares for us. But that should in no way diminish who He is and who we are and the awe and fear and trembling that we ought to have before such a one. We should never forget that. We should never be so flippant and shallow in the way that we approach God, and the way that we worship God, and the way that we talk about God. He's not the guy in the sky. He is God, holy and lifted up. And we should approach Him as such. John MacArthur told the story of a, of a well-known charismatic pastor that he was an acquaintance with. And he said that that pastor told him a story that, that went like this. He said, the pastor said, Sometimes in the morning when I'm shaving, Jesus comes into the bathroom and He puts His arm around me and we have a conversation together. And MacArthur said he looked at him incredulously and he said, And you, and you keep shaving? I mean, think about that. Think about the way that we view God. Think about the way that we view Christ. Again, I'm not trying to diminish the access that we have and the, and the fatherly aspect that we now have as His children. But do we approach Him that flippantly? Do we approach Him as though we wouldn't fall on our faces as Isaiah did in awe and wonder? That's not the way that Isaiah responded. And I believe we ought to consider our response when we approach God. We think about His holiness, and we think about our sinfulness, even as believers, our struggle in the flesh and the times that we fall short. And how do we reconcile those two things? How can sinful creatures approach a holy God? How should we do that? What does it look like? Peter gives us some advice on those things. When we read verses 13 through 16, we read a lot of what appeared to be commands. But in the Greek, there's really only two commands, and the rest are simply admonitions. They're participles, if you will, that connect to those two commands. The two commands in verses 13 through 16 are fix your hope, 
and be holy. Those are the commands that are given. The rest connect to those. Fix your hope and be holy. So look at verse 13 with me. My favorite word, therefore. You know I talk about that all the time. When you see therefore, you ask, what is it therefore? It points us back, in this case, to what Peter has just talked about, what we just preached about last week. The salvation that we have in Christ and all of the benefits that are a result of having that salvation. And Peter writes to them, because now of what you believe, because of what you have in Christ, it should affect your behavior. How you believe should affect how you behave. Amen? If you truly believe and understand and know Christ and the Spirit of God lives within you, those beliefs must affect your behavior. Charles Spurgeon, one of my favorite pastors, said this, Doctrine, what we teach and preach and believe, may become dangerous if it, not, if it be not reduced to practice. And all the doctrines of God's Word may be readily turned to good and practical account if we are willing to employ them. Those who regard doctrine simply as a subject for debate an opportunity for displaying one's argumentative powers missed the mark altogether. He says, For we are taught the truth in order that it may lead us to holiness of life. This is the object of God in giving us more light, that by that light we may ourselves become more full of light and be the means of conveying light to others. We don't just learn these things so to become knowledgeable. We learn these things to put them into practice so that we become conformed to the image of Christ as we are being sanctified. We become more holy. We become more Christ-like. And in turn, the light that we have shines brightly to those around us. That is the object of growing in this Christian life. And so in verse 13, he says, Therefore, because of those things that we've talked about, prepare your minds for action, or the King James, as I said, says, gird up the loins of your mind. If we were to go back to the time when Peter lived, the men would have wore long flowing robes down to their feet, tied together with a belt. And when they had to work, or they had to run, or they had to get ready for a battle, they would pull up those loins and tuck them into their belt so that they could move quickly, so that they weren't going to be tripped up by those things. That is what Peter is telling us to do uh, allegorically with our thoughts. He says, gird up, get ready, prepare yourself, prepare your minds. I think it's interesting how often Peter focuses on the mind. How often the scriptures focus on the mind. Because as human beings, how many conversations do we have each day with ourselves? All day long, you are having a conversation with yourself. And here's the scary thing. The overwhelming majority of those conversations are negative. They're negative about yourself. They're negative about others. They're negative about your situation, your life, your world. And those negative thoughts consume us. And a lie repeated enough becomes the truth. And we start to have these internal dialogues and we replace what we feel and what we think and what we're saying with the truth of God's Word. And I think that's why the Scriptures so often warn us about our thought life. And that's why it says in 2 Corinthians 10.5 to take every thought 
captive, literally a prisoner. Take every thought a prisoner to obey Christ. I was thinking about the Scriptures that talk about our mind. I thought about the book of Romans. It says, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by what? The renewing of your mind. I thought about Paul's great letter to the Philippians and in chapter 2 when he talks about have this mind in you, which is also in Christ. He wrote to the Ephesians to be renewed in the spirit of your mind. He wrote in Colossians to set your mind on things above where Christ is. Over and over and over, he tells us to take negative, unbiblical thoughts captive and replace them with the truth of God's Word. Because we are in a war, church, every day, and the battlefield is largely in our minds. And we need to prepare our minds, gird up the loins of our minds for this battle and be prepared. I think about what he says next. Not only prepare your mind for action, but be sober-minded. The New American Standard says be sober in spirit. The NIV says be self-controlled. All of those carry the idea of what that word really means, and that is don't be drunk. That's really what that word be sober-minded means. Don't be in some kind of a mind-altering state. Be focused. Be intentional. Six times that word is used in the New Testament, and three of those times Peter uses it. So it's something that he drives home really frequently in his writings. One place that we see it a little later on, we'll look at this verse uh, in the coming weeks, 1 Peter 5, 8, he says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Be sober-minded. Have your thoughts right. Be watchful. Be prepared. Gird up the loins of your mind. Because there is an enemy, and he is seeking to devour us. What are you thinking? What are you listening to? He says, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. A perfect verse, I feel, to complement what he says there is Titus 2.13. Look what he says there. It says, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He says, set our hope, church, our hope fully on the grace brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, when we think about grace, has God shown us grace now, currently? Man, so much, hasn't He? Hasn't He been good to us to give us this grace? So many things that we don't deserve, the biggest of which is our salvation. But Peter is saying, when we live the Christian life, and if we hope to live a holy life, if we would focus on the finish line, if we would view the culmination of all these things at the revelation of Christ, or as Titus it says there to Titus, at the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. To put it in, in my hillbilly terms, is saying you ain't seen nothing yet concerning the grace of God. You have not seen anything yet. Because when we talk about salvation... Salvation occurs the moment you believe. Repent and believe, you are justified. The moment you place your faith in Christ, you are as saved as you will ever be. But there is, in a sense, 
a gradual working out of that salvation in your life. We are saved the moment we believe. Then we enter into a part of that salvation known as sanctification, where we are becoming more like Christ. We are being, through the power of the Holy Spirit, conformed to His image. And ultimately, that will be concluded in the glorification when we go on to be with the Lord. So that salvation is instantaneous, but it is worked out progressively through the sanctification and ultimately the glorification of all of God's people. And so we think about what God has done for us now, currently, and we rejoice. But we think about the, the culmination all the more. A great pastor of, of years gone by, C.T. Studd, an evangelist, he said, if Christ be God and died for me, there's nothing too great that I can do for Him. When you think about what God has done for us, and He doesn't expect a repayment, we could never repay something uh, so infinitely marvelous is what He's done for us. But what He's done for us and who He is to us ought to cause us to want to live for Him. It ought to cause us to want to be holy and more like Jesus. When we think about the things that we talked about last week that Peter said about us, especially in verses 4 and 5, that we have an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven by God's powers, guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. We should think on that. We should think on that often. We should think about what God has done for us and what He has promised for us. And think about what's waiting for us. And it ought to drive us to run and press on towards that finish line. It ought to cause us to want to run this race well. It ought to cause us to want to finish this race. One writer said, Expectant looking motivates enlightened living. Expectant looking motivates enlightened living. If we believe that Christ is coming back, or we believe that soon we'll fly away, regardless, if we are looking forward to the return of Christ, should we not be living in such a way that we will not be ashamed at His coming? And that we have led others, as many as possible, to know Him before that day. So Peter encourages us in verse 13. And then look at verse 14. He says, we should be obedient. As obedient children, don't be conformed. Don't follow the pattern, is what that word means, of the passions of your former ignorance. The salvation that we have, the new birth creates in us a new heart and new affections. And it ought to drive us to strive for a new way of thinking, a new way of living. In Ezekiel 36, 26, he writes, I will give you, the Lord will give you a new heart and a new spirit I'll put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. God recreates us. He causes us to be born again. And that should change everything about us, church. That doesn't mean that we walk in perfection, but we ought to be striving for holiness. We should not blow that off as simply legalistic living. We ought to want to be more like Christ. Because that is the challenge that Peter gives in verses 15 and 16. As He who called you is holy, you also be holy. In what? In all your conduct be holy in all your conduct no exclusions there do you notice that in everything that you do where you work where you play at home and abroad 
In everything that you do, live a holy life. Vance Havner, a great old preacher from years gone by, said holiness is not the way to Christ. Christ is the way to holiness. Christ is the way to holiness. God is holy. Isaiah told us that. The scriptures tell us that. He is the standard and we are called to live in obedience and submission to Him. Willfully and willingly obeying Him in awe and fear and reverence for who He is. One of my favorite quotes, I've, I've used this many a time throughout the years, is by a guy, a theologian, uh, a pastor named D.A. Carson. I want you to think about this quote. If you've heard it before, uh, that's great. But if not, listen to what D.A. Carson says. People do not drift toward holiness apart from grace-driven effort. Think Think long and hard on the language he's using. People do not drift aimlessly toward holiness apart from grace-driven effort. People do not gravitate toward godliness, prayer, obedience to Scripture, faith, and delight in the Lord. We do drift toward compromise and call it tolerance. We drift toward disobedience and call it freedom. We drift toward superstition and call it faith. We cherish the indiscipline of lost self-control and call it relaxation. We slouch toward prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking we have escaped legalism. We slide toward godlessness and convince ourselves we have been liberated. You will never drift into a deeper relationship with God. It's only by grace that we are able to keep the commands of God. But it does take, as D.A. Carson says, grace-driven effort. It requires work on our part. It requires diligence on our part. We have to prepare, gird up the loins of our mind. That doesn't just happen by sitting back and not being active in that. We have to prepare ourselves. So let me give you a few things as we come down towards the end of this message. I want to give you a few warnings about what I'm not saying this morning so that it's not confused. First, trying to live a holy life to earn salvation is a works-based false doctrine. What I am not preaching to you today is that if you are lost, for you to be right with God and have a relationship means that you need to improve your living. I am not saying that. We are saved by grace through faith, not of works. Not of works. But the believer who is born again will work from his salvation, not to his salvation. That's what I'm saying. As a believer, there should be a standard of holiness that you recognize in God and that you seek to be played out or shown out in your life. Number two, merely seeing holiness as law-keeping is legalism. What I am not telling you to do is to go home like the Pharisees and write out 613 laws and every day try to check off the boxes that you kept each and every one of those and then demand it of others. I'm not saying that we simply revert back to living under the law. What I'm saying is that we recognize our position before God, recognize that our salvation is only because of Him and His sheer grace, and then we strive to know Him more, and as we know Him more, the result will be that our lives are transformed as we obey His Word. 
I'm not trying to drive you back under the law which can only condemn you and will cause you constant defeat and discouragement because we all know the reality. The harder we try to keep the law, the more we focus on cleaning ourselves up, the more we fail and the more discouragement we face. We feel like constant failures because we're not pressing into Christ. We are forcing ourselves into a standard of living in our own strength that is unattainable. And that's not what I'm teaching you. Number three, seeing holiness as a key to favor with God is self-righteousness. What I am not saying here today is that if you can attain to a higher level of holiness, that God is going to put you on the A-team, that He is going to make you one of the all-stars in heaven, and that He is going to bestow more love and favor on you as opposed to someone else. You are as loved, as forgiven, and as accepted in Christ as you can ever be. Because it has nothing to do with you. God's favor is on His Son. And the favor that you receive is because of your connection to the Son. Not because of who you or I am. But we still strive to live holy because God commands such and we want to be pleasing to Him. But it's not just done through this legalistic way of living. So what am I saying? Let me give you three, thing, three thoughts on that. Number one is this. Holiness can only be accomplished by a true believer. A lot of people struggle to think that, well, to get to heaven I need to be a good person. I need to be a good person. Jesus, when having a conversation with the rich young ruler, said, why do you call me good? There are none good but God. Good people don't go to heaven. Holy people do. And there are none holy apart from Christ. And so when we speak about holiness, holiness is something that is only possible, that is only a title reserved for a true believer. If you are watching today and you're lost, if you're in this room today and you're lost, I have, again, I am not calling you to morality. I'm not calling you to ethical living. I'm calling you to a humble submission, a repentant attitude towards a holy God whom you stand condemned before this morning. And if you continue in your sin, you will die lost and be separated from Him eternally in hell. That is the reality of the Scripture. But you do not have to allow the condemnation of God to stay on you any longer. If you will turn from your sin and by faith receive Him, you can be forgiven. And positionally, you can be made holy. And then practically, you can begin this process of living out a sanctified life, becoming more holy. Number two, holiness is marked by continued repentance. We call sinners to repentance when they get saved. But we also call believers to live a daily life of repentance. Not for your salvation, not that you have to be born again every time you sin, but because our fellowship is broken when we sin, and just as Jesus told Peter in the upper room, I'm going to wash your feet. And Peter said, wash everything. Give me a bath. And Jesus said, you don't need to be washed. Again, you're already clean. But when you walk through this world, your feet get dirty. And you're going to need your feet cleansed from time to time. And we as believers are going to sin. And when we do, it causes a disconnection, if you will, in our fellowship, in our assurance, in our peace, in our joy. And we need to repent of those things. We need to repent, not to be saved again, but to have that fellowship, that closeness, that nearness with God. And number three, holiness is not simply ceasing bad behavior. It is becoming more like Christ. 
Again, we can fall into this trap where when we struggle with sin, and all of us have habitual indwelling sin, right? We have this indwell, this besetting sin that we struggle with. And the reason why we never get victory, I believe, over those besetting sins is every time we commit it, we, we all, I think most of us do the same thing. First of all, we make a vow with God, which we're called not to do. And we make a vow. I promise, God, if you forgive me one more time, I will never do that again. I won't do that again. I'll never click on that website. I'll never go to that bar. I'll never do that. I promise you I'll never do that again. And then history repeats itself. You do it again. Here comes the enemy to accuse you. And you're convinced that you must not be a child of God. Now, I encourage you, examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. Don't just assume that you're a child of God. But there are true children of God that struggle with sin. Habitually. That have a sin that they are warring against. And that is the key. That they are really genuinely warring against it. They don't want it. They want to be free from it. An unbeliever doesn't want to be free from their sin. They love their sin. That's the difference. But if you are warring against it, you can't just say, well, I'm going to do better. I'm going to make a promise. You've got to kill that thing. And the way you kill it is take that thought captive. As soon as that temptation comes, don't think about it. Don't dwell on it. Get rid of it. Fall on your face in prayer. If the computer's a problem, chuck it out the window. Throw the phone out the window. I don't care what you've got to do. Remove the problem. Fall on your face before God and take those thoughts captive. And trust Him to give you deliverance through those things. Jesus said, if your right eye offends you, pluck it out. If your right hand offends you, chop it off. That is a hyperbole, but nonetheless, he's saying that it's serious, guys. Sin is a serious matter. Just because you are blood washed doesn't mean that sin is not a serious matter anymore for us. You better take it serious. And you better take it serious because there is a holy God that we as believers will stand before as well. Not for our salvation but it still ought to cause you to tremble a little bit to know that you are going to stand before God one day and give an account for your life. Your words, your thoughts, your deeds. It ought to cause us to strive to live more like Him. Colossians 3.10 says, Having put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge of the image of its Creator, we ought to live dif- differently. We ought to live different lives. Salvation is... All of God. There's nothing we can do to be saved other than repent and believe. Every part of salvation is a gracious, supernatural work of God. But once we are saved and we begin to be sanctified, that involves the Spirit of God and our cooperation. Salvation is what we would call monergistic. It's God alone. Sanctification is synergistic. Yes, it's through the power of the Spirit alone and the Word of God that we can be sanctified. But we do have to submit and surrender. We can grieve the Spirit. We can quench the Spirit. And that causes an obstacle to be placed in the sanctifying work in our lives. So you have to cooperate in this thing. I'm going to ask the sound room to get this video ready. And I'm going to close out with this video. It's from, again, one of my favorite preachers. Don't agree with him on everything. But he's gone on to be with the Lord, and I I always have enjoyed his teaching, R.C. Sproul. And I want you to think about, this was a QA and a that was done a few years ago with several pastors. And you'll hear the question that is asked. And you'll hear R.C. Sproul's response, one of my favorite clips of him. And I want you to think about what we started with. 
How do you view God this morning? How do you see His holiness? How do you live today in light of those things? So play this short video real quick and then, and then we'll wrap up. If it cooperates. Since God is slow to anger and patient, then why, when man first sinned, was his wrath and punishment so severe and long-lasting? Uh-oh. The dreaded spinning circle. Time out. <laughs> Didn't we just have that question a second ago? We did. Yeah, it's a little, I think little, we little did. Nuance. That God's punishment for Adam was so severe. This creature from the dirt defied the everlasting holy God. After that, God had said, the day that you shall eat of it, you shall surely die. And instead of dying, Thanatos, that day, he lived another day and was clothed in his nakedness by pure grace and had the consequences of a curse applied for quite some time. But the worst curse would come upon the one who seduced him, whose head would be crushed by the seed of the woman. And the punishment was too severe. What's wrong with you people? I'm serious. I mean, this is what's wrong with the Christian church today. We don't know who God is. And we don't know who we are. The question is, the question is, why wasn't it infinitely more severe? If we have any understanding of our sin and any understanding of who God is, that's the question, isn't it? I'm going to invite the praise team to come. And as they're coming, I'm going to, I'm going to ask you the same thing that R.C. Sproul asked. What's wrong with us? Literally, what is wrong with us? I believe the answer is we have, again, forgotten or not considered enough the holiness of God. I hear so much talk of revival and the desire, and we need revival in our lives and in our churches and in our nation. And I agree. But how will that revival ever happen if we don't understand the holiness of God, and we don't fall on our faces before Him in a proper position and look to Him for that to happen. Revival will only come when God's people get broken over this sin. Not just wringing our hands at watching the news and not just pointing a finger at the world and saying, boy, they're a mess. But understanding who we are and our need and getting right with God every single moment that we have, confessing our sins to Him and to one another, not playing games with this stuff anymore, but really and truthfully falling on our faces and crying out to God for mercy and grace in our lives, in our churches, and for our nation. Be holy, for I am holy.
is what Peter says to those Gentiles struggling back then and to us today. Let's pray. Father, we come to you today, Lord, and my prayer is that all of us would understand our position before you and that we would humbly bow, crying out to you for our sins, for our apathy, Lord, for our nation, for our homes. Lord, we have put so many idols in your place. And it's my prayer in my life, Lord, that I would be more holy. It's my prayer for this church that we would live more holy. And Lord, it's my prayer that churches around the country would become more holy so that we might see true works of God and not have to manufacture those things through experiences and strange fire in our worship services. Lord, help us today as your spirit moves to have a proper position before you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As we stand.